0: These coaching sessions have saved our marriage. I'm like, what the heck are you talking about? We're, we're, I'm not a marriage counselor. What are you even talking about? And they said that they said that forcing themselves to sit down and have a conversation about money forced them to confront the things that they had not wanted to previously talk about. And when I thought about it, it just seemed so obvious after they said it out loud. It's like, well, of course. I mean, if you agree about, if you agree on everything in your budget. By extension, you have to agree on what you're spending your money on, which means that you agree on where you wanna live, what kind of lifestyle you wanna have, how much you wanna save for retirement, where you wanna send your kids to school, what you wanna drive, what your attitude is about debt, how often you're going out to eat, what you're, you know, you you have to agree on everything if you're gonna make the money work. It's impossible to do one without the other. And so just the act of getting people to budget together Just the act of getting people to sit down and just have a conversation about what the future looks like.
1: Hello and hola, friends. we get into the show, here's a quick message from MR Insurance, a small business that helps physicians with their disability insurance needs. Michael L. Relvas is a CFP professional and insurance agent committed to helping physicians nationwide with their term life and disability insurance needs. He provides an objective, transparent, and education-focused process that aims to help physicians make more prudent decisions and avoid overcomplicating things. He exclusively offers own-occupation disability insurance policies for residents, fellows and attending physicians. We know he'd be happy to help you with whatever your needs are. You can find Michael at doctorpodcastnetworkcom forward slash MR insurance or contact him at 800-817-4522. Please help me welcome our guest on today's show of Medicine, Marriage and Money, Dr. Brent Lacey. Dr. Brent is a gastroenterologist who is passionate about helping physicians succeed with business and personal finance. As a physician, he understands how overwhelming it can be to step out of clinical training and into a career. And he has seen firsthand the lack of education on how to run a practice and manage finances. He has coached hundreds of families to succeed in eliminating debt, and has spoken to physician groups around the country on topics related to business and personal finance. That's also why he founded the Scope of Practice website. His goal is to help physicians learn how to manage their businesses and successfully master their personal finances. Yay, thanks for coming, Dr. Lacey.
0: Oh, thanks for having me. This is gonna be fun.
1: And of course, we know each other through the Doctor Podcast Network when I first started listening to your show. so. Nice to have a fellow doctor podcast member on my show.
0: Yeah, absolutely. and uh, it's it's been really great to get to you know share in that community. So if anybody's listening, if you haven't heard about it, go check it out because we've got a lot of really great shows that are part of the network now.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, first, okay, first tell me tell us a little bit about you stuff we I didn't cover in your intro, maybe like what you're doing now, where you live, if you're married, have kids, that kind of thing.
0: Well, as we're recording this, I'm actually not too far from you. So, we're uh, we're both in Dallas, Texas, and right now we are staying in an Airbnb while our house is being built. It's taking forever. I think it's going to end up being one of those things like like my fellowship. It's, you know, I'm glad to have gone through it and I never ever want to do it again. I think that's where we'll end up in 6 months. But right now we're just kind of frustrated it's going so slow. But I'm a gastroenterologist still practicing full-time. And my wife's a pediatrician and, but right now doing the stay at home mom thing, taking a break for a bit. We met in medical school and then I went off to the, I went off and did all my training in the Navy and she came with me, but she did all of her training on the civilian side. So uh, we've been bopping around the country for the last 15 years with the military, which uh, has been a lot of fun, but we just got out last summer and started or uh, joined a private practice group here in Dallas. And so now I've been doing that for the last about five months or so, which has been awesome. It's hard to leave all our friends in the military, of course, but I mean, the the new practice has just been fabulous.
1: Wow. Okay. So where did you come from right before Dallas?
0: Well, so right before Dallas, we were in Jacksonville, North Carolina, which if you've never heard of it, it's because you're not in the Marines. So, which is most of the country, but it's this little tiny town and on the very Eastern coast of North Carolina, about an hour North of Wilmington, about two hours East of Raleigh, which is to say in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) So but it was but it was great. It's basically uh, it's basically the the big marine base for the East Coast. So everyone comes out of boot camp at Paris Island, and their next stop is Camp Lejeune. So that's where we just came from. And before that, we were with all the Flyboys down in Pensacola. And before that, we were uh, out in San Diego for six years. So it's, we've been coast to coast.
1: Oh wow, San Diego to Dallas. How how do you guys you miss San Diego?
0: You know we miss we miss the weather. And I San Diego is a town that I like to visit, but you know as much as as beautiful a town as it is as much as I love being there as much as we enjoyed our time i am over the traffic and so we're we are over california traffic so love you can love you guys in california but i am i'm done with that
1: okay well it's so it's so nice to have you in dallas we'll definitely have to meet up sometime now that well victor and i are both vaccinated are you guys both vaccinated
0: yeah i just got just got my second 3 or 4 weeks ago so Catherine's still waiting on hers so she's she's still in she's not practicing at the moment. So she's actually not a 1A right now.
1: Got it. Okay. Well, take us back. Take us back to that moment when you guys first met. What was that like?
0: So I wish Catherine was here. She tells the story actually, I think, better than me. She always makes me sound better than I am. But we actually met in medical school. So I was a year ahead of her. And at the, I guess it was about, it would have been, well, it was March. As a matter of fact, it was March of my first year of med school. And she had been accepted to med school. And so, as the as the incoming second years, what we did is we decided to host, I think we called it a second look weekend for the incoming first years. Cause you know how it is when you go through your interviews, you know, you have, you know, eight, 10, 12 interviews in the fall. And you know, it's you're just running back and forth to get the basic tour. Let's go see the anatomy lab and which is super unhelpful. And then, you know, you're you're you maybe see the classrooms or something, but you don't get to see very much or talk to people. So we brought everyone back and let everyone, you know, meet all the all the second years and you know, we had a, a mingling time to, for people to get and see what the different student interest groups were. And we took people around the local area to show people different apartments where most of the med students lived. It was great. And so for that Friday, we had at lunch, we had all these tables set up out in the plaza and uh, had all these different student interest groups. And so I was out there, you know, talking about the, the military scholarships, HPSP programs. And so, so I'm just out there, just basically shilling for the Navy. And then so Catherine comes walking up. And, you know, she has utterly no interest in the Navy whatsoever. I was like, oh, and she's with one of her friends I'm like, oh, hello, ladies. Would you guys like to hear about the military? They're like, Why, yes, we would. That would be wonderful. I was like, with utterly no interest at all. But she's the way she tells it is like, there was this handsome guy and I had to go see him. So anyway, so we chatted for a while and I was telling about it. And so she asked me, how did I get into the Navy? And, you know, I told her that, you know, I felt God calling me to it. And, you know, we talked about, we talked about our faith for a bit and I invited her to come to church whenever she came back for the fall. And so, you know, she, you know, she and her friend left and that was one of a couple hundred interactions that I had that day. And I was not smart enough to commit that to memory. It was just sort of like, I'm helping a first year, you know, that was my thought. But at that moment, she felt like that was a really defining moment. So she goes back to college. She, her roommate is her twin sister. And Eileen asks, so how was it? How was your weekend? She said, it was fabulous. I met the man I'm going to marry. His name is Brent Lacey. He's in the Navy and he's back in San Antonio. And so that whole summer that was like, she and her sister and her parents talked about that. Like we met Brent Lacey and he's going he's waiting for me and he's going to marry him someday. And so then the first week of the new year, it's July, it's end of July. And the second years had a whole bunch of, you know, social events set up for the first years. And so the, one of the days we were at a minor league baseball game and it was, it was super fun. We had, you know, we had these blankets out on the, on the, on the lawn and, you know, out in the center field and so everyone's just kind of mingling. And then so I went out there with one of my buddies and and then Catherine comes walking up and I didn't remember her specifically. But you know, she of course had this incredible recollection of this memory. It was such a defining event. So she came over to sit and talk to me and we just we just hit it off. I mean it was I mean I guess you could say it was love at first sight, but I mean it was for sure infatuation at first sight. But you know it was it was fabulous. And I remember walking away from the from the ball game and uh, I was talking to my my buddy and I was like hey John you think I think I should call that girl and ask her out. He's like, yeah, yeah. You guys couldn't take your eyes off each other. So if you don't call her, I'm going to have to, and that's going to be super awkward. So yeah, you need to call her. And so then, so then Catherine goes and calls her sister afterwards and says, Eileen, you're never going to believe it. I You're never going to believe who just called me and asked me out. Brent Lacey. She's like, what, the Brent Lacey? <laughs> like it was this famous thing they have been talking about all summer. It was hilarious. So So we went out to dinner on Saturday. I took her to church on Sunday. We went to study together on Monday and we got married five months or no, 10 months and one day after our first date.
1: 10 months. Oh my gosh. And that was her first year of medical school?
0: Yep. So I proposed after I proposed five months exactly to the day after our first date. And we got married five months and one day after that.
1: Okay. So, like, what was it? How did you know, like, how did you fall in love with her? What, what were the things?
0: You know, we, well, I think it was helpful that we were both, we had already gone through college. We, we already had our career tracks planned. There wasn't, we weren't really in self-discovery mode anymore, I think. And I think that was helpful. So, and we spent a lot of time together. So, I mean, the, the first and second year classrooms were right across the hall from each other. So we would have lunch every day, you know, we'd go, we'd study together. Well, we didn't study together much, honestly, just because, you know, she, she likes to study at home. I get distracted, so I have to study at the library. So, so our uh, a lot of our dating was we would go and like I'd close down the library in the evening and then go pick her up from her apartment. And you know we go over we go down the street to the Sonic the Sonic drive-in. And after ten o'clock, they would have these happy hour specials. You get a big drink for ninety nine cents, which on my Navy stipend was perfect. <laughs> and we just sit in the car and chat. So we we did we did a lot of we, we did a lot of dating. Had a lot of great time together over those five months, and she was she was ready before I was. I think she was ready within I don't know six weeks or something like that. I think it took me three months. and so she she makes fun of me that I took
1: forever. <laughs> oh, my gosh, that is so special. Okay, yeah, the not being in self-discovery mode, that is super helpful. And, oh my gosh, infatuation, but you guys knew. and she already knew. she already knew
0: she already she already knew. It was actually kind of funny. so when we so we came back from Christmas break and I' had proposed. and so, And so she's showing her engagement ring off to all her girlfriends. And so one of her, one of her girlfriends in her class turned to her husband who was at there was some social event and she turned, she turned to her husband and said, you owe me 10 bucks. And like, what are you talking about? She's like, Oh, when we were at the baseball game, I bet my husband $10 that you guys would be married by the end of the year. I was like, really? She's like, Oh yeah. She said, I went home. She said, I went home that night from the baseball game. I said, and Chris said, well, how, how was he? She said, well, I watched two people fall in love tonight.
1: Oh my gosh, how sweet. Now, what was it like though, planning a wedding while you were in medical school?
0: So we ended up getting a wedding planner because Catherine really wanted to get married in my home church back in Dallas. And so we're in San Antonio, and trying to plan this thing long distance is just impossible. So we ended up getting a, a wedding planner. <laughs> we were on a really tight budget with everything, but that was totally that totally saved us. It was the only way we could do it. And so Anytime there was a decision to make, she would send us, you know, like cakes. She'd send us or or like wedding invitations or whatever. She'd send us three options and say pick one. And we're like, great. Don't give me twenty-five. Just give me three options and I'll just pick from there. So those that was tremendously helpful. And my my family's up here in Dallas. So my mom and my sister were helpful in, you know, finding places and that sort of thing. So so it was uh, that was helpful.
1: Oh my gosh. Yeah. Cause I because we planned our wedding while we were in residency. And at first I thought you were supposed to have it like in The girls' hometown. So I was trying to plan it in Kansas City. And then I was, and we didn't have, we were decided we should, we didn't have a wedding planner because we were in residency, which looking back, I mean, we should probably, I mean, you were in medical school and you decided it would save you guys stress, right? We were in residency. And then after a month or two of planning it in Kansas City, I decided, no, 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 we're going to do it in Detroit where I met you, your hometown, where all of our current friends are. And I think Victor didn't talk to me for like a day or two because he had planned, like he was our wedding planner. <laughs> he had planned every started planning everything for Kansas City. So yeah, yeah, definitely smart move with the wedding planner.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was it was definitely worthwhile. So the the hardest part was was that we really wanted to get married before I was gonna start any of my rotations, which was which was and we wanted to have time for, you know, honeymoon and that sort of thing. So My, our, So we had two weeks of final exams at the end of April. And then on May 1st, I basically checked myself into the library and studied for 22 days straight for step one. And then I took step one on the 23rd. And then my brother picked me up in San Antonio and drove me back to Dallas and we got married on the 26th. It was a crazy month.
1: Okay. And so how many years have you been married?
0: This May will be 14.
1: 14. Okay. And it was infatuation, love at first sight. Tell How do you run a successful clinical practice while still maintaining your successful marriage and family life? And I guess you guys went through everything together, medical school, residency, fellowship. So like, how did you do that?
0: Yeah, it, I think the, the, the short answer is it was, you know, there were times when it was just kind of stressful, but honestly, I think most of it is just, it just came down to just communicating really effectively. And so one of the things that we did very early on And this was, this was something, this was advice that we got during our pre-marriage counseling that we did at our church. And I think it was super helpful was that most conflicts in marriage arise from unrealistic and unmet expectations. And so one of the things that we were very diligent about was every week and every month and every new rotation, sitting down and stating, stating very clearly, what are our expectations for this month? Okay. So you're on the ICU. I'm in the, you know, whatever I'm on the cardiac unit. So, you know, we're going to be on every third night call. We'll probably see each other six times this month. And, you know, we'll have date night a few times and who's getting the groceries this week and who's doing dinner and stuff this week. And when is it every man for himself? And yeah, we would just sit down and have these conversations, but we were very deliberate about it. And I think that was tremendously helpful. And so initially we would have these, you know, we'd have like family conferences on Sundays or whatever it was, this kind of formalized thing. But over the years, it's just gotten Almost second nature, where it's just where we can almost just do it in passing. It's like, it's like, hey, uh, so this week, what's going on? Oh, yeah, I'm, see, I'll, I'll get groceries this week and I'll do this and you do that. And it's like, okay, sounds good. You know, so we've had a lot of practice at it. But I think that process of continually setting and renewing and revisiting expectations saved us a lot of trouble. And so I think that was, I think that was the most helpful. And then I think the second thing for me is that was really valuable is keeping the practice and family life completely separate. So when I go to so when I go to work, it's Dr. Lacey and it's game on. And, you know, if I have if I have time to call her in the middle of the day, I take that time. You know, if she calls me and I'm able to answer, I always take it. But by and large, I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of focused, right? And then when I come home, you know, I put the stethoscope down, take the white coat off, and I'm dad and I'm husband. And there's there's no work talk, there's no computer, there's no pager, there's no cell phone. It's just let's go out and play baseball with the boys. Let's, you know, go to the park. Let's do whatever.
1: Wow. Oh my gosh. I respect that so much. So you don't have people like texting you or calling your patients or other people who are referring patients to you at nighttime?
0: No. You know, if she, so after we put the boys down, if she's, if she's doing something, you know, I may, you know, if she's, if she's, you know, working on some stuff or, you know, doing her Bible study or whatever, I may hop on the computer computers, make sure there's nothing urgent. But, you know, my that's one of the things that's really good about our practice is that everybody's very intentional about making sure that that family time is protected. And so, you know, whoever is the person that's on call for the group, they take all the outpatient calls and the inpatient calls. And so, you know, we'll pass messages off to each other in the morning, but we really try to keep family time as protected time unless there's some kind of weird emergency.
1: Okay. Okay. Yeah. And I love those Sunday evening or Sunday day communications of what's going to happen during the week. I, I think it took me and Victor several y- years to figure that out. It took like almost kind of losing track of who's going to take care of our first child one one night. when <laughs> We both had like a work shift and we were like, okay, we're going to have to start from the beginning and discuss work schedules every single week now that we have a live human being to care for.
0: It's, it's tough. And then you, well, and then you start figuring out, wait a second, we only have one car with a car seat. Who's going to take which car? And then it you start playing musical chairs, it's like, okay, wait a second, we really need to play this better.
1: And what have you found that the pandemic has taught you about either running your clinical practice or your marriage, your family, or both?
0: So I think a couple of things. I think the first thing is that having, having some foundation to fall back on is really, really critical. And I think we found this both in the clinical practice and in our marriage that it's important to define and really establish in a concrete way your values, both as a family and as a clinical practice before you hit a crisis, because the crisis will test the values to the limit. It's not the right time to figure out what your values are. You need to figure that out beforehand. And then anytime a question comes up during a crisis like that, then the first, the first question needs to be, okay. Okay what do our values say should you know should direct us here well we could make this decision that would have this effect or this impact on our employees yeah but that doesn't go with our with our values of being employee centric okay so that's not the right call and that kind of thing makes decision making in a crisis a lot easier when you have really clearly defined values and a purpose that you're anchored to that can pull you back and so i think that was tremendously helpful and i think it also renewed our the importance of setting and maintaining expectations because now all of a sudden things are different. So, you know, I, I got out of the military last summer and all of a sudden, you know, we went from having a steady, very stable paycheck for a long time to legitimately nothing. I mean, so all of, like last summer, all of our docs were working for free. Like none, nobody was taking any salary for like four or five months or something like that, we were just trying to see as much telehealth as we could do whatever we could do just to try to keep the business afloat. And so all the docs were literally working for free. So I went from steady paycheck to legitimately nothing. (laughs) And so that was challenging. And I think one of the things that was really helpful was, like I said, setting those expectations, like, okay, we're, you know, we're not going to go out to eat as much, you know, we're going to, we're going to be a lot more, you know, frugal, we're not going to have as many activities, we're going to have to do some different things for a little while until things get going and it'll be a short term thing we think but you know then you know sitting down and setting those expectations with each other and coaching our boys through it and letting them understand what's going on i think was really helpful and then i'll tell you the last thing honestly that was really valuable for me was realizing that you know we're debt free there i can't even tell you what a blessing that was because you know if you if you suddenly find yourself without a paycheck and yet you still have, you know, car payments and student loans and, you know, mortgage and this and that, those banks are going to come calling. So now we got lucky on the student loans because they, you know, they froze that. And there was, so there was some relief there and that was helpful. But I tell you what, that kind of thing is tremendously stressful. So having paid off our debts a long time ago, just really gave us a sense of peace that we didn't have to stress over that.
1: Right. I mean, a lot of people don't understand what what people are so excited about financial independence. Like, oh, I love my job. I'm going to do it you know, every day for the rest of my life. But yeah, then COVID happens.
0: Yeah. Under things you never thought would happen is you know, physicians filing for unemployment benefits. Like, wait, what? But yeah, I think the thing that the pandemic taught us is that financial security is an illusion. It's never more secure than the next paycheck.
1: So what was it that your practice, you guys weren't able to take a paycheck home? Was it you weren't, being, you weren't able to see enough patients? Or what exactly was it for your practice?
0: So the state of Texas shut everybody down. And so, you know, we weren't able to do, we weren't able to do hardly any procedures except for basically emergencies. So that, that cut off, that cut off the, you know, procedure wing of the, uh, the business. And then, you know, this is back in the early days of uh, April, May, June, they completely shut down all indoor gatherings. And so we weren't able to see hardly anybody in person again, unless it was an extreme emergency. We went to a hundred percent telehealth almost and, you know, we were trying to learn how to navigate that. And there was lots and lots of people that weren't really ready for it or weren't really used to it. And we're trying to convert people over. And some people didn't, you know, we were, were kind of leery of it. And of course, telehealth doesn't reimburse as well anyway. So, you know, I mean, the, the company's revenue dropped tremendously. And so the docs, we, you know, we, they basically all voted and said, yeah, we want to keep the business afloat. We want to pay our employees. And so we're going to have to go kind of Spartan with it for a little while. So we're not going to take a paycheck until we can start getting everybody back up and running. And so that's what they did. And that's what I mean by, you know, by establishing your values ahead of time. So, cause if they had said, well, this is a great opportunity just for us to cash in some bonuses and then you're, you know, firing people and furloughing people. It's like, what kind of message is that sending to your people? And so, and you know, this is not to say that, you know, people who did it differently necessarily did anything wrong, but that was just something that we felt was really important for our practice. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so excited I got to join these guys. They're just and gals, just wonderful people.
1: That no, that's awesome. I mean, I've he- I actually've heard that from a very good, several very good friends here in Dallas, some some GI doctors who just were worried about what they were gonna do every month. So it happened to a lot of people.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, and it's, you know, it's not the last time something like this is going to happen. I mean, every 10 to 12 years, there's a major crisis. I mean, you go back the last 70 years and you hit about seven to eight crises, right? So you have the big housing crash of 08, 09. You had the dot-coms burst in 99, 2000. You had the crash of 87. You had the recession of 78. You had, you know, I mean, you just go back and back and it's just like every 10 years, something happens. So this isn't the last time, this may be the last time COVID happens, but it's not going to be the last time something happens.
1: Well, I mean, so you, you're like, were you already a master financial coach before COVID hit?
0: Yeah. So that was, so that was about four years ago, five years ago that I did that. So I got, I got started doing financial coaching by teaching the Dave Ramsey Financial Peace University course at my church. Started that like six
1: years ago or so. Okay. Already prepared and the debt-free thing.
0: Yeah. So I'd already been coaching and doing stuff for quite a while. But honestly, I'd been prepared long before that, just from my my parents teaching us when I was a kid, which was one of the reasons why I started the scope of practice. Cause you know, I just saw that so many people didn't have the benefit of that training. And so just felt like that was something that, you know, needed to be shared, needed to be talked about. So I, I'd been doing that for, for quite a while. And so, you know, it's it's funny. Some of the just the really basic lessons that I coach people on and like Hey, spend less than you make, have an emergency fund, you know, things like that started to sound really smart about last April.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I guess that they sound like common sense, but what people sometimes just don't have the impetus or, you know, they just don't apply them until they think they really need to.
0: Yeah. I mean, the reality is, if you look at the statistics, the average American can't write a check to pay off a $1,000 emergency. The average 50 to 55 year old has less than $10,000 saved towards retirement that they hope to achieve in 10 years. You know, the you know the average person lives paycheck to paycheck. The average person doesn't have adequate insurance coverage. The the average person has, you know, huge amounts of debt. Average is terrible. You know, average is really really bad. And so these really simple lessons which, you know, like you said, it should be common sense. It's almost like having a superpower. And it's not like any of these are new. I mean, I got all these from my parents, and you know, the Bible, and you know, a thousand, a thousand years of of basic wisdom. I mean, this none of this is new, but like you said, it's it's all about how you apply it.
1: Yeah, well, and it's also the message the the person speaking. Some people just haven't heard heard it from the right mouth, heard it from the right person. So that's why we need people like you to reach you know the clients that you reach and tell us a little bit about that. Like what kind of impact? Oh wait, back up. I did have a question for you about that. You were talking about the average American. Were you are you factoring physicians into that or not? Like, what do you see? Do you coach just physicians or not? And then, what do you see physicians relative to the average American?
0: This is a great question. So, yeah, I mean, my the website is mostly geared towards healthcare professionals and then physicians, as in in, you know specifically. But no, I mean, I coach people from you know from all socioeconomic statuses. So you know, we've got I've coached ladies at church that are you know retired and they're living on social security, which is least as of a year ago it was like $13,300 a year, something like that. I mean, it's, it's, it's awful. It's terrible. So note to self, people do not rely on the government to take care of you in retirement. That is a bad financial strategy, but that all the way up to, you know, yeah. People who are, you know, dermatologists making six, $700,000 a year. And the thing that's really fascinating Kate that I absolutely cracks me up every time I think about it is that is that physicians, you know, someone who's making a half a million dollars a year and someone who's making the you know the average median like the median income in the states which is now $52,000 a year household income that's the median, the only thing that's different about physicians who make a half a million dollars a year is that we do the same dumb stuff but with more zeros on the end of it. I mean, that's the that's the only difference. It's all the same stuff. It's spending more than we make. It's, it's having a lifestyle that we can't afford. It's not having an emergency fund. It's failing to get adequate insurance coverage. It's all the basics. It's, it's nothing. There's nothing new under the sun. It's absolutely fascinating.
1: Wow. Okay. I didn't realize it was 53. I thought it was like 54, but it's actually, maybe it's gone down since I checked.
0: It may, it may have gone up. So I'm quoting 2019, I think statistics there.
1: Okay. I have no idea. i, I mine. Mine is old too. But what, okay, tell me about how your clients, what are the results your clients get? Like, how do you actually make an impact when you work with them?
0: Okay, so here's something really interesting. And I think you'll appreciate this, just given that the podcast is medicine, marriage, and money. The thing that has continually impressed me is how much the coaching helps people's relationships, more, even, even as much or more than the money. That's the thing that blows my mind continuously. I'll never forget the first time that someone told me, you know, we, we, we had done a couple of coaching sessions. I'd gotten them to sit down and do a budget together and, and start, you know, start getting on a debt elimination plan. And we had a whole process that we worked out with them. And the, I don't know, third or fourth time that we got together, they said, you know what? they like, they had, they both had these big grins on their face. And I was like, cause the previous ones had been kind of contentious. And so I was like, what's, what's going on? What's so funny. And they're like, well, we just wanted to tell you, thank you. I was like, for, you're welcome. I mean, but for what? She's like, well, these coaching sessions have saved our marriage. I'm like, what the heck are you talking about? <laughs> we're, we're, I'm not a marriage counselor. What are you even talking about? And they said that they said that forcing themselves to sit down and have a conversation about money forced them to confront the things that they had not wanted to previously talk about. And when I thought about it, it just seemed so obvious. After they said it out loud, I was like, well, of course. I mean. If you agree agree on everything in your budget, by extension, you have to agree on what you're spending your money on, which means that you agree on where you want to live, what kind of lifestyle you want to have, how much you want to save for retirement, where you want to send your kids to school, what you want to drive, what your attitude is about debt, how often you're going out to eat, what you're, you know, you, you have to agree on everything. If you're going to make the money work, it's impossible to do one without the other. And so, just the act of getting people to budget together, just the act of getting people to sit down and just have a conversation about what the future looks like. And I call it dreaming in high definition. So, what is specifically not, I want to retire well off. You know, it's like, okay, no, tell me about the little Italian villa in the countryside that you want to retire to. You know, tell me about the beach house that you want to buy. Tell me about the cars that you want to drive. Tell me about the trips that you want to take, like dream in high definition, have something that you're working towards and, and use that as motivation to fuel you. And so that's the thing that's amazing to me is that, is that as people get their money on track and it gives them financial security and eventually financial independence, their, their marriage is stronger. Their, their family is, is more together as a unit. They have a, healthier relationship, they have a better outlook on life. I mean, people's depression tends to go down as as financial peace goes up. It's it's amazing. I think that that impact has been the thing that's been the most surprising and the most gratifying over the years.
1: Wow. Yes, because you save people's marriages, relationships. And who would have thought, you know, like I mean, but you're right. Money does touch almost, well, pretty much every aspect of your life. I mean, You know, I have several friends who, or I feel like I find this a lot in physicians and especially in an academic institution, like where I work, you know, we just don't like to talk about money. We think we have this kind of greedy, evil mindset when it comes to money. And we're, you know, we're here for our patients and it's everything's about our patients, but people just don't want to talk about the money. And, you know, the same thing when they go home with their families, because they may be, you know, men and women in faith, like you are, and just want to do good in their community, go on missions and stuff like that. And it's just, money's not a subject they want to talk about. Do you encounter people like that and how do you deal with that situation?
0: Yes, so I definitely do. I would say that there's usually one of a few different emotion sets that people have when we're dealing with this kind of thing. The first one is, is that is this sense of, oh, well, I, I, it's, it's wrong, it's creepy, it's weird to think about this as a business or as as you know, as money. Cause yeah, like you said, we're supposed to be altruistic, we're supposed to be helping our patients. And the way that I, the way that I tell people about it, and this is one of the values that we have in my practice, is we run an exceptional business so that we can practice great medicine. Right. And so if we don't practice good business strategies, if we don't if we're not smart about how we about how we bring in revenue, about how we you know navigate tax, you know implications, about how we invest properly, about how we spend our money, about how we hire people, if we don't make smart business choices, we will not have a business that is able to care for our patients. So the the polarity has to be right though. So if you, you know, cuz some people get the get that polarity reversed and they say, well, I you know, I I take care of patients so that I can make a lot of money and have a great business. Like, no, 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 you got it backwards. You, you have a good business so that you can continue to practice great medicine. And so I I think that helps alleviate some of that guilt from folks. The other thing that I hear a lot from people is, is shame. You know, it's, it's the opposite. It's, you know, I'm making $500,000 a year and yet I still have crushing levels of student loans. And we're living paycheck to paycheck, and we can't're we haven't saved for retirement. We haven't done anything. And it's like it's like someone who's going on a diet and they're like, "I don't even know where to start. You know, it's like, I might as well just keep eating Oreos, right? And so it's it's a sense of hopelessness. It's a sense of shame and guilt that's overwhelming. And I think normalizing that for folks and saying, look, you know you're you're not alone. This is, you know, sorry to break it to you, you're not special. <laughs> I mean, most people, most people have this problem. This is, This is normal, and normal, as you've identified, is terrible. So let's let's see what it takes to get abnormal. Let's see what it takes to get extraordinary. And just giving people that that sense of power, that sense of purpose, that you know, hey, you can do this. I mean, you're not, you know, there's lots of people that are in way worse shape than you, and they've done it, and you can too. And I think just having that empowerment behind you is really helpful for folks too.
1: Ah, okay, love that. Yes normalizing the hopelessness the shame so many people feel that right
0: well and i'm sure and i'm sure you see that in your coaching practice too right as you know with folks that have had you know maybe it's not money troubles maybe it's relation troubles of other kinds that you know they feel like they're somehow uniquely horrible
1: yes yes no it's like we all have had the same problems for thousands and thousands of years and we just don't talk about it
0: <laughs> yeah and it's it's tough it's you know it's you feel you know, self guilt. You worry about being shamed by your peers. You, you know, and I think that's that feeling that this, that we must be unique. There must not be anybody else who's like this because how could anybody else be this dumb? Right. You know, like that's the, that's the thing that goes through people's minds. Like, no, everybody else is that dumb. They're just not talking about it.
1: Yes. Normalization. I love that. We definitely normalize everyone's feelings because we can have all the feelings in the world and they're all normal. So yeah, very important. Okay, now Brent, let's talk about your family and how you guys handle the finances. What does it look like in your household, and how do you get the whole? Do you get the whole family involved, or is it just you?
0: No, it's a great question. So here's what we do, and I think this is a pretty good model for folks. The first thing that Catherine and I did when we got married, or one of the first things that we did, was combine everything. And this is something I coach people on. I think is critically important. You need to have everything be together. You need joint checking accounts. You need joint, you know, joint names on the mortgage you need, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's not your money and my money. It's our money. It's not your debt and my debt. It's our debt. So when we got married, I was on Navy scholarship. I had no student loans and Catherine had student loans. And so now we get married and now we have student loans. So I will say that I've been tracking my net worth for a long time and it was in the black, but not by, you know, a whole lot. And it was depressing to just watch that line absolutely plummet. It was so painful, but you know, it's, you know, it's, it's like, if you got cancer, you know, your spouse isn't going to say to you, well, that's your cancer. You take care of that, right? It's, it's our problem. We're going to deal with it together. We're going to support each other. So I think that's the first thing that was important for us is combining everything. The second thing that I think is really valuable is and i i so i call this designating a household cfo there's going to be one person in the relationship that is more inclined towards doing the actual mechanics of the money stuff so balancing the checkbook setting the investments you know navigating the finan- you know like the investment websites and things like that you know you, you know doing the spreadsheets if that's your thing so there's one person who's better at that and they can do all the mechanics of it but here's the key both people need to have an equal say And so for us, I would do all the budgeting and make all the spreadsheets and you know and you know, come to her with everything. But then at that point, it's an idea, but it's a draft, right? And so we go through it together and it's like, okay, so now what do you think about this? Like, well, we we need to think about maybe plussing this up and maybe we don't need to spend as much in this area. Okay, and then we we talk about it and we set it and then we set it together. So one person deals with the mechanics, but both people have equal decision making power. And I think setting us up, setting us both as equals has been really valuable. And then once our kids hit three and four, we started doing just a little bit of coaching with them. And so, so we have our kids on commissions. We don't, we don't call it allowance. We put them on commissions. And so, uh, and so anytime there's, anytime we're doing chores and stuff, you know, I'll say, if there's something to be done, I'll say, Oh, Hey, uh, Grant drew, I have a commission opportunity for you. And their ears perk up. They're like, yes, commission opportunity. Great. And so we started coaching them on that. But at, you know, right now they're three and six. So it's, it's very simple, rudimentary stuff. We're just building some basic financial muscles. So it's money comes from doing work, right? That's a basic lesson. Money comes from doing work. And what can you do with your money? You can give it, you can spend it and you can save it. Those are the three things you can do. And we need to be doing all three all the time. So whenever they get their quote unquote commissions, um, they get, you know, we do, what we do is we'll do 60 cents per commission when they're three and five right? So it's 50 cents to spend, five cents goes into their save jar, five cents goes into their give jar. And so they, they know that they're doing each one every time they get money. So it's just very basic. So, but yeah, but we do have the whole family involved, at least in that way.
1: Oh, I love that. Yes. Okay. So commission, the commission opportunity, I'm going to have to bring that up with my daughters. You said you started, did you start when your six-year-old was three?
0: We started, yeah, he was three and a half or so, something like that.
1: Hey, that's perfect. My oldest is three and a half. I, I ask her, cause she asks me to buy things like on Amazon all the time. If we don't have like all the books, like in the series, oh, we'll just go, you know, go buy it on Amazon or Costco. And I ask her if she has money and then she just like reaches into her fake back pocket and gives me air money. But we can talk about this commissions for like picking up her toys or doing stuff like that.
0: Yeah. And so for us, what we do is, you know, we, we have, we separate the chores into two different categories. So there's certain things that we have expectations that you will do X, Y, and Z. Because you're a member of this family. And so there are minimum expectations. So, you know, making your bed in the morning, keeping your room clean, you know, picking up after yourself, things like that. You know, we have things that we are, that are, you do this because you're part of the family. There's no money expectation with that. It's the extra stuff. It's helping load the dishwasher, it's helping bring groceries in from the car, you know, helping dad sweep the porch, you know, stuff like that that's, you would kind of consider extra, you know, above and beyond. And those are, those are the commission opportunities.
1: Oh, my ok. well, this is opposite in my house because my daughter loves to sweep the outside, like wherever she can sweep. And she loves to carry the groceries in from the car. But she will not pick up her toys unless I really break it down and make it simple for her, but ok,
0: yeah. so basically for us, what we said is self-care, self-grooming type stuff. so keeping your room clean, keeping your bed made, that's minimum expectations. And then if you're doing other things that make mom and Dad's life, quote, unquote, easier, although, you know, not really, <laughs> then, uh, then that's the kind of stuff they get, they get extra, extra rewards for.
1: Okay. I love it. Okay.
0: But yeah, they've been, they've been able to save up and buy a lot of stuff and it's, it's been, it's really generated some interesting conversations, you know, so they'll they'll have money burn in their whole, burn a hole in their pocket about something. And they'll say, I really want to spend my money on this. I'm like, okay, but if you spend your commissions on this, you remember you expressed interest in this other thing and then you'll, it'll take you another three weeks to be able to save up for it. Oh Yeah. Okay, maybe I'll wait, you know? And so it just gives us opportunities to have some of these conversations. Or, you know, if we say, if they say, well, y'all really want this, like, okay, well, would you like me to find some work opportunities for you to make some commissions? Like, yes. Can we do five tonight? (laughs) Like, and then they start, they really start getting into it. It becomes almost like a game.
1: Okay. So do they see the money, the actual like paper or coin money going into something?
0: Yeah. So what we do is we have, we have mason jars. So we have a, a, and I think having it in a, a clear container of some kind. It helps them watch them as the money kind of stacks up. And so what we'll do is we have we have jars that have dimes and nickels and quarters in them. and so if they if they earn a commission for something, you know, I get a couple quarters, a couple of nickels, and then they can go over, and each one of them has their own set of jars that are theirs that are labeled give, save, and spend' And they have to actually go and put the money into the jars themselves. And so, Again, it's, it's building those, it's, it's building those muscles. It's building that muscle memory. It's I just did work. I get money. I put some and give some and save some and spend, and they do that over and over and over again. And that repetition is what's driving the coaching for them.
1: Okay. I love it. Okay. Give, save and spend. And then what about you? What's the smartest financial decision you've ever made in your life, Brett?
0: I would say, you know, there's a lot of ways you could answer that. I think that would be really interesting. I think combining everything when I got married was probably the the smartest financial decision that I can think of. I I know way too many couples, and I've coached way too many couples that you know one of them one of them has money over here, the other one has money over there, and it's like okay, well I pay the rent and she pays the utilities, and we and I pay the food this month and she pays the food next month, and it's tense, it's weird. And Kath and I just never had that, and so I think I think having everything combined was probably the smartest thing we ever did.
1: Yeah. And I can imagine like when you're like, oh, I pay the groceries this month and you pay next month. Like what if you spend more? I don't know. Yeah. Things might get a little bit weird. I mean.
0: They become massively complicated and the banking part of finance for a family finance should be the simplest thing. You know, the hard decision is do we send our kids to private school or public school? Where do we live? What kind of car do we drive? How much money are we giving to charity? Those are the tough questions that you need to have time for. Not, you know, you spent, you know, utilities were $180 last month and it's $164 this month. So you owe me $16. I mean, that's that kind of that if, you know, it's, if you have two people that are working on parallel lines, right? So everyone's going towards their own goals, then you're, you know, then you're, you're going to always be moving apart, right? So, but if you have a central goal at the top and you have two people starting down here and you're both moving towards that central goal, then like, like you're moving from the bottom two corners of a triangle to the top of a triangle, you're, necessi- you're by necessity moving closer together if you're moving towards the same goal. And, and I think that that's just really, really important.
1: Yeah. Well, you bring up another great question. How much do we give to charity? How much do we decide to give to charity? I've had couples ask me that before. Like Maybe one of the person is the, a physician and the other one is not a physician. And so they have vastly different ideas of how much is appropriate to give to charity. Does that ever pop up for you?
0: Yeah. Okay. So I'll give you an example from the last month, actually. I was coaching a couple that uh, I won't say their names, but they were, they were trying to decide how to allocate money to give to one of the spouse's family members. So there was one of the spouse's parents were not doing, they were, they were just not as very well off. And so you know, trying to figure out how much money they wanted to give them, the you know the one whose parents it was wanted to give them a lot, and the other one was like, eh, not so much. But one of the things that I think was was really interesting is that once they started talking about why they wanted to do different things, I think they started to realize, okay, we've never sat down and actually explained to each other the reasons behind our goals. And once they started to understand the heart behind their thoughts, then they started to figure out how to come together. And I think that was kind of a light bulb moment for them. But but yeah, I definitely do see that. And it's not just on giving charity. I mean, almost every, almost every financial decision that you make, the two of you are going to have different ideas. So I'll give you another example from my own life. So when Catherine and I were first married, her sister decided to become a full-time missionary. And so she is a full-time missionary in Mexico. And Catherine really wanted to support her financially. And so, and it was really important to her. And so she came, she came to me and said, I really want to be sending her, you know, some, some support every month. And she was, she was already, she'd already decided in her head, this is what we're doing. And she had made the, made the call and she was excited about it and she was emotionally invested in it. And I'm sitting here thinking about the budget and going, where the heck am I going to pull that from? You know? And so, and so she's telling me why it's important. And I'm trying to explain to her how it's going to be a challenge. And we just, we just weren't clicking. And so, once we started to kind of discuss, okay, this is what I'm worried about. Here's what I'm worried about. Here's what I'm interested in. Here's what I'm interested in. Then we were able to come to a compromise on that. And so, and that's, again, part of that setting and renewing expectations that we talked about at the beginning that, you know, you just have to start having some of these conversations, but you're going to have different expectations on every single financial decision that you make most likely. And so you just got to get, just got to accept that and decide, okay, they're gonna be different. And so we gotta figure out how to come together.
1: Yeah, talk about it. Figure out what what's the underlying want to need and desire.
0: Yeah, exactly. And if you can do that with love and if you can do that with patience for the other and you know, really seek to come to an understanding and not just be standing your ground all the time, then yeah, it'll work out.
1: Okay, well, I have one last question for you before you give us any big take-home points or advice. What is your definition of marital interdependence?
0: So, I would say that marital interdependence would be when both spouses are more focused on serving the needs of the other than they are on meeting their own goals. And if both so if if I care more about my wife's goals than I care about my own and she cares more about my goals than she does about hers, then It tends to foster a selflessness and a relational unity that is going to tend to work out pretty well in the long run. But if both people are focused on their own goals and their own interests, then you'll be constantly in a tug of war trying to get what's yours. And so the only way that you can have that kind of, of interdependence instead of independence is to give up uh, a little bit on what you want in favor of making sure that the other person is getting what they want. And then it becomes what you both want.
1: Oh my gosh. I never thought of it that way. I love that. Caring about more about the other, this other spouse's goals more than your own it leads to selflessness and relational unity instead of fighting a tug of war. That's a beautiful analogy.
0: Yeah. So, cause if I'm constantly, if I'm constantly trying to walk towards her, and she's constantly trying to walk towards me instead of me trying to pull back from you know from from her and trying to trying to bring myself in. If we pull if then we're if we're pulling towards ourselves, then we're pulling apart. If we're pulling each other, then we're pulling ourselves together.
1: That's beautiful. Well, Brent, is there anything else you want to wrap up with? Any big take-home points, something you maybe you've already said or haven't said or want to emphasize before you tell us where we can find you?
0: The thing I would say is that. Every relationship comes down to the choices that you make. And I think for me, the most important choice that I made and that Catherine made, and we did this, we were very deliberate about this when we were in our premarriage counseling, was to decide that no matter what, no matter what, no matter what, we would always find a way to come together on things. And whether that meant we needed to take some time to separate for an hour or two and kind of think about things and then come back together or whether it was just, you know, learning to communicate with each other. We just decided that no matter what, we were always going to continue to work on our relationship and continue to do better each day, 5% better, 10% better all the time. It was just never going to be a question of, you know, are we going to give this up? Are we going to, you know, are we going to not, is this not going to work? It's just, we are just going to figure out a way to just make it work. And if you can keep that in mind as you're as you're going through life with your spouse that, okay, no matter what, I'm going to choose to love this person. Even if it's very hard right now, I'm going to choose to love this person. I'm going to choose to try to come together with them. And if both spouses do that, that is a recipe for success. And if either spouse decides to stop doing that, it's a recipe for disaster. So love the one that you marry and just decide that you're going to keep doing it no matter what.
1: Oh my gosh, I love it. Yeah, cuz I tell people all the time, decide, commit, own it, take 100% responsibility. Well, Brent, where can we find you?
0: So the website is thescopeofpractice.com and uh and so that's that's going to be the best place for people to inter- interact and we've got I've got a podcast and a blog and all kinds of great stuff and if your listeners are interested, I actually put together a, a little guide to help people out. It's called Five Financial Decisions That All Couples Should Make Together. So it's a little guide to help you get these conversations started. And you can get that at thescopeofpractice.com slash couples Take it on your next date night and start having some of these money conversations. And it's it's a lot of fun. It really is. So thescopeofpractice.com slash couples finances.
1: Okay, that's perfect. And okay, I figured out what I was going to say. Even in the best marriages, or even in the best, most loving marriages, sometimes it's hard to love your spouse in that moment or in that minute. That's what I was going to say.
0: <laughs> well, you know, one of, my, one, of my favorite, one of my favorite quotes of all time is from Augustine. And he said, we become brave by doing brave things. So bravery is not an inherent thing. We become brave by doing brave things. And by extension, I think that we become loving by doing loving things. And, and so if there are times when it's harder to like your spouse or harder to love your spouse for one reason or another, or you're just, you know, you're just crossways or you're just angry, finding a way and making that choice, like you said, decide, commit, own it and decide to love your spouse in that moment find a way to show love and to be loving and you know if you can do that you will be able to overcome absolutely anything
1: beautiful thank you so much for coming on my show
0: oh it's my pleasure thank you so much for having me
1: Before we end, don't forget to reach out to MR Insurance Consultants, where their goal is to assist physicians in obtaining the most comprehensive coverage available to fit their unique situation. Reach out for both excellent and quality service at drpodcastnetwork.com forward slash MR insurance. episode with Dr. Brent Lacey. Oh my gosh, I just actually met up with Dr. Lacey about a few weeks ago to look at his gorgeous new home. And uh, he lives very close by to me. So anyway, it's a very special place. And let's get in to the big take-home points that I got after listening to Dr. Brent Lacey. Number one. Most conflicts arise from unrealistic or unknown expectations. Expectations often equal disappointment. If you are looking to your spouse to give you respect or appreciation or understanding, you are searching for external validation, and this can often lead to disappointment. If you're not receiving The external validation. If you don't think you're receiving the respect, the appreciation, the understanding, instead, Dr. Lacey recommends you give yourself the respect, the appreciation, and the understanding. Let me just paint a picture for you. You get home from work, you're exhausted. The hampers are full of dirty laundry, the trash cans are overflowing with dirty banana peels and eggshells, the dishes are stacked up in the sink, the kids are hungry. You're waiting for your spouse to tell you. That they're going to do all your chores. Go put your feet up, take a bubble bath. You just got home from a long day at work. Well, <laughs> if you're waiting for them to say that, you may be waiting for a long time. If they don't say it, figure out what you need in that moment. In that moment, you walk through the door and you see the dishes, the laundry, the trash, the kits, the bickering. Figure out what you need in that moment and give it to yourself. So ask yourself what you need. You may need to explore your thoughts, dig deeper. This may be something new to you. Maybe you need to sit down, take five minutes to play with a dog on the floor or the baby. You may need to sit in your car for an extra five minutes and jam to your favorite song before you even enter the home. Whatever it is, you can figure it out. Remember, you are in control of where your relationship goes. If you are bored or annoyed or irritated, your relationship will go there too. So maintain a state of appreciation. And if you are not in that state, find that state, change your state. Number two, figure out your business, family, and life values before a crisis arises. Don't wait for a crisis to figure out what is most important in life to you. Be intentional about the hours you give to yourself, your spouse, your family. This may require some planning, this weekly planning, Sunday nights, Monday mornings. A crisis will inevitably arise and test your values to the limit. None of us are immune to tragedy. Money or health issues will inevitably arise in your lives, in all of our lives. Caring more about your spouse's goals than your own fosters selflessness and a relational unity. I don't mean that you always place your spouse's goals first. You certainly want to place your goals right up there with them. But if you're focusing on your spouse, if you're truly in love, if you're truly a team and you truly want what's best for your relationship, you're going to care about your spouse's goals even more than your own because you want their happiness. You want to shower them with love. You want to come at this relationship from a place of love as opposed to playing a tug of war. If you both do this and allow each other to be the ultimate expression of oneself, your relationship will flourish. Then it becomes what you both want. Constantly trying to walk towards each other instead of away from each other. And the last bonus take-home point. If you run a business of any kind, medical or non, just remember, we run an exceptional business, meaning the financial side, so that we can take care of people. We can either practice good medicine or give good service, whatever industry we are in. The ultimate goal as a physician is to practice good medicine. I'm sure we would all agree So behind that, to prop that up, to support that, we need an exceptionally run business. And that is it, my friends. I just want to add that. Dr. Lacey actually just just started a new online course. I didn't even time it this way. I don't know how this happens. I feel like it's just divine intervention. He just started officially launching June 14th, today, Monday, the day this podcast comes out, an online course called Residency Proof Your Marriage. Now, if you listen to Brent Lacey at, uh, during this podcast, you know, he's an exceptionally great speaker. He has so many good points about marriage, relationships, finances. This is going to be an amazing course. He has been working on this. He told me since last summer and he's finally ready for the beta version launch. There are six modules covering a variety of critical marriage topics like communication, parenting, finances, conflict management, more. Sounds kind of like the things that I talk about (laughs) when I did my group coaching but I would love it if you guys you know, jumped on board with this. You won't even believe the bargain price for everyone is $99 to sign up for this course because it's the beta version. Students and trainees, if you're listening, you get it for 69. But oh my gosh, $99, that's like a steal for dozens of hours of curated video content, guided activities to help your, uh, to help you connect with your spouse, deepen your relationship, step-to-step guides, to help build financial plans, lifetime access to the videos, including the final version when it launches later this year, lifetime access to a private Facebook group, you guys, I mean, I don't even know, but $99 is like buying a lollipop right here. Okay, so go to www.thescopeofpractice.com forward slash marriage course if you're interested in signing up. I'm going to include that link in my show notes. I'm actually going to sign up for it myself because I think that uh, I would be crazy if I didn't. And I'm just throwing all that in there. I just can't believe the timing. I hope you guys walk away asking yourself, why do I feel shame or hopelessness when it comes to my finances? Or do I? Maybe I don't. What unrealistic or unrealized expectations do I have for my spouse? How do I show selflessness towards my spouse? How can I commit to loving my spouse despite the struggles which may and do arise? Am I choosing to love my spouse on a daily basis? How do I show love? That is it, my friends. Please go fly away, spread positivity and love, unconditional love into this world, and so much, so much love to you and your spouse. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional, medical, or financial advice. The opinions provided on this podcast are those of myself or the invited guest alone. They do not represent the opinions of any particular institution. Always seek the advice of your physician or financial advisor with any questions you may have of a medical condition or financial plan. This is for your entertainment only.